0: It feels like a shift is happening.
1: Ideas are never just ideas. They
2: impact the way that we live. And there are some ideas, to be quite honest with you, that belong in history books.
1: As relics, litmus tests, for us
3: to see how far we have progressed as humanity. Now, under
4: apocalyptical moment, many people can see what was already there.
5: Welcome to The Collective Perspective. Truth, expression, community, and Black Lives Matter. We at The Collective Perspective are not impartial or on the fence about Black Lives Matter. We unequivocally support Black Lives Matter in our actions, our thinking, and in our spirit. Your Experience with Race and Privilege, with Isaac J. Connor, an actor, director, and producer based in the New York City area. Joshua Boylan, a poet and chef in the San Francisco Bay Area. Celine Yohamas, a drummer, percussionist, and educator in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Kiana Martin, an entrepreneur, soccer visionary, and producer in the New York City area. Mia Medeiros, a painter, photographer, and graphic designer in the San Francisco Bay Area. Tori Lee, an actor, author, dancer, and educator in the San Francisco Bay Area. Nazila Jameson, a poet, vocalist, and comedian in the San Francisco Bay Area, Hassan Wood, a stunt performer and actor in New Jersey, and Remy Schaefer, an author, playwright, and producer in Pennsylvania. I wasn't raised with uh, any kind of racism in my life. My parents were hippies, so a lot of things were just left up to me to figure out in life about spirituality, about all kinds of things. When I was nine years old, I was sleeping over to a friend's house. This is in Oregon. Most of my childhood was Oregon. So we're driving to... His house, and some point in the drive, he goes, "Run n word n word, run n word n word." I'd never heard the word before, so I was like, "Daniel, what was your dad saying?" He goes, "I'll tell you when we get to my house." We get back to his house, and you know, we're playing He-Man or whatever, and I was like, "So what? What was that about?" He said, "There was a black kid running across the street up the road, like, right, okay. I I didn't see it, but what does that word mean?" He goes, "Well, that's what black people are." Like, "Oh, okay." And like that was my first experience with it. That's registered in my conscience. So from there, um, because I was raised the way I was, people that were different from me in any way at all, unless it was threatening, were intriguing. And I didn't find out until later when I was in San Diego. I was probably late twenties, going out with a girl named Lupe. I was talking to my mom on the phone and just you know talking about what's going on. I said, "Oh, you know this girl I'm seeing, Lupe," and she goes, "Uh oh." It's like what? What's uh oh? Said is she Mexican? It's like, Guadalupe is her full name. She's originally from Mexico. Why? She goes, well, they steal. And I was like, what? Like my whole life, I have given you the credit for raising me as someone without prejudice. And now it's just spewing out of your mouth like word vomit. Like, how is this possible? She goes, they steal. And I'm like, mom, you remember when I was 17 and you had to pick me up from the police station because I got arrested for stealing? are we Mexican? And you never told me? It's like, well, okay, I I see your point. And so that was my, those are my first experiences with, with uh, this blatant racism. In my mid twenties, I became a political activist. This is when I started to actually recognize I haven't had to deal with some of this stuff that a lot of people are dealing with. And I haven't had to like dig myself out from all this racist BS because Thankfully, my parents saved me from their own delusions. I mean, kind of crazy. Going closer to, to recent times, when I moved to Pennsylvania, I heard the N-word all the time from people that I thought I was befriending. Like, oh, I made, made friends, blah, blah, blah. People of a certain color. No, what color are you talking about? Well, you know, like, and I'm gonna go home. Bye, last time I ever see them. Mia, you shared a blog post recently about your experience with racism. It was really colorful and not a cookie cutter version of what somebody would be blogging about right now in your position. Do you care to share any of that?
1: Um, Well, it was a long post. I usually don't write that long for public. I think a lot of people don't want to digest that much, but I couldn't stop. And I tried to share a little bit of everything that I've seen. And I keep thinking of things that I left out, but, you know, I wanted to share my viewpoint from being white privileged to being part of the racism, like seeing it firsthand, like, you know, going with my buddy in college in his Corvette who had cornrows and was picking up a blunt at Seven Eleven, And that's what we did. And we loved each other and we were like best of buds. And um, the cop like that pulled up right next to us, put his hand on his gun and leans in the window to me and goes, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm okay. And he's like, no, it's okay. Are you okay, ma'am? Like, like pushing me to say something bad, you know? And I'm like, yes, I'm okay. have a nice night officer, you know? Like, and I got so angry. And then this cop, which I wrote about in the blog, followed us until he was out of his jurisdiction. And it was just like, yeah, we were up to a little no good. You know, we're buying 40s and blunts. But, you know, but at the same time, would he have done that if I was with the white guy in that Corvette? No, probably not. That was in San Diego in college. That was the first time I had seen that sort of behavior since I had lived in Annapolis. And in Annapolis, they had an extremely corrupt cop system. And I say cop because they're not police officers to me. A police officer is somebody who truly keeps the peace. But a cop is somebody... Who uses their power wrong, in my opinion. And those cops had it coming because they had a lot of people who rebelled against them. But I saw kids getting shot by cops. And then as, as a, as a, as a kind of, oh, I'm sorry from the city, they let them use the white church. Like they had ever stepped foot in that church. Why would their family even want to go there? And why did they go there? I don't know. So the, so the whole blog post was about things that I don't get. I understand why the black people were mad at white people at my middle school, but it didn't make it right. And I understand why the white people were mad at the black people and they had no excuse. Like it was just never right. Like there's just no excuse, you know, in my opinion. So I wrote that blog because I wanted people to see it from different angles. Nazila and Kiana, I think what's interesting about what y'all said was that you had only had these discussions within your community. And the only time I had ever had these discussions before this year was with my black friends. And it's like, why are black people the only ones talking about this? You know, that's what is interesting about this right now to me and I love that it's being opened up to the world. I'm sad that it didn't happen sooner, but I'm not going to go backwards here, you know? Like, let's move forward with this. Let's, let's build
6: on it, right? Like, we've been talking about it in the Black community for all these decades because we've had to. Like, we've had to discuss race in the community because we've always had to deal with it. Um, growing up in South Carolina, like, I never didn't know about race. I had my first actual racist experience in second grade when a little girl told me she couldn't play with me anymore because her parents said that I was So I've had, you know, and, and my sister had to explain it to me. And then there were, you know, the police and just the racist environment in South Carolina and in Atlanta when I was growing up. And then moving to Philly, like I have never not had to deal with it. So we have always had to, it wasn't a question of having the conversation. We've always had conversations in our ways. Um, mostly, you know, figuring out how white people are so we could like stay safe and avoid like, you know, the radar or the offense or whatever, like all my life, we've always had to have these conversations. Um, it is definitely a function of privilege to suddenly discover this subject now. And I think it's awesome that like, you know more of the wider world outside of the black community actually recognizes that it's an issue but it also is frustrating because it's like you know you live this every single day all the time and all of a sudden it's like hey is that what's been going on wow we should talk about it and you're like right i'm glad that at this juncture you you've all of a sudden decided that we can talk about my life. Like, great, that's awesome. I'm not gonna disparage this moment. Like, I think it's great that people are even having the conversation. It's different having a conversation and living it. Having a conversation is, you know, wow, and I've been a part of this conversation. Well, I'm awful. I'm just gonna walk away from this conversation now and pick it back up when I feel like it. I can't walk away from this ever. I wake up in the morning, I deal with it all day, I go to sleep. Um, it's never a conversation I can opt out of when I feel like it or don't feel like it anymore. I mean, I think that the way, you know, we really start solving the issue is when everyone considers it an obligatory conversation.
5: Is everybody aware who, of who Banksy is? Banksy's an artist, a political artist. And Banksy shared this on June 6th on uh on their instagram at first i thought i should just shut up and listen to black people about this issue but why would i do that it's not their problem it's mine people of color are being failed by the system the white system like a broken pipe flooding the apartment of the people living downstairs this faulty system is making their life a misery but it's not their job to fix it they can't no one will let them in the apartment upstairs this is a white problem and if white people don't fix it someone will have to come upstairs and kick the door in Love that so much. The other thing is from Robert, the founder of Vondesand. It's a circular furniture company. He was a featured artist as well. But what Robert did share in an email just so that his point of view could be included. The topic is also actually here. I was just watching an interview on a Dutch talk show. It is all about empathy and understanding. We as white people have to transform our thoughts on how we can hurt the other just by saying the wrong words. We will never understand how that person feels. History tells us that our race tried so hard to be superior to any other race. Now it is time to draw the line, give the past a place in our hearts and start from zero. Everyone is equal on this planet. We don't have to be superior. We just need to respect and love. Someone else from Holland that I spoke to recently, and I can't remember who it was actually, was saying that that the privilege is, is, it really needs to be talked about in the Netherlands as well because over there, there's so few people of color that everybody kind of pats themselves on the back for not being racist. Like, nope, not a problem here, we're all advanced. And that's part of the privilege.
4: First of all, I don't know if Nazeel I don't see her on the icons, but like, I feel like what she was saying before is like, basically like, she was born black, she's going to die like we are both black, she's going to die black, she goes to sleep black. Like, everything happens around the idea of being black. So like she said, like the conversation for us doesn't end, you know, it's like a perpetual understanding of where we stand and where we need to be. But and I mean, I'm going to be very blunt here, like our voice is very, very light in the in the resounding sense of of what progress we can make. You know, I'll, I'll be honest, like a lot of white people, their voice is a bit louder than ours, because like she said, you know, now we're having. Oh, now we're allowed to talk about our lives. Now we're allowed to have this conversation. So it becomes a conversation of, oh, well, we've been here for a while, but it's welcome that you are here now. So let's 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 jump off from where we are now. Here's what you need to understand. So I feel like the the idea of trying to get you know more, uh, well, white people to join the conversation and honestly have the awkward conversation with their peers because this can't be a remedied solution on a global scale if people are willing to say okay you know what i've got my work colleagues i've got my mates i've got my family if i'm willing to have a conversation okay well do you believe black lives matter why do you believe all lives matter why do you believe president trump is the best candidate like why do you want to withhold these views like in a very unusual way i am willing to except that I may not know everything. So I'm willing to have a broader conversation, understand people, because a lot of people on both sides are are plugging their ears, digging their heads in the sand and not willing to talk. So I feel like this is a very progressive, receptive group. So having a conversation all together is is a much better uh, look because we can have a broader discussion. But like racism in the UK, like people don't, or rather London, people don't really expect that because we are a community of a larger, uh, melting pot of, of, of cultures. So, you know, you go a few hundred meters long, a few hundred miles away, you get like to France, you get, like, Germany, you get to Europe, you get to more languages, you get to a lot of things. So like it's not unlike the U S but it's a very particular brand of racism. And I feel like media understands that, but it's just that it, it's, it's something that we have to pass through and dissect because it can't be just one person saying, all right, well, here's a view you need to understand. And no, I didn't, I didn't experience like adult racism. I left the UK when I was 10, went back when I was 26, but I didn't experience that sort of uh, unapologetic racism. It was very, like the US, very subtle racism. Like nowadays I can walk down the pavement, or walk down the sidewalk and a couple or a single person will walk, on the opposite side of the street, simply because I'm walking into their path. I would rationalise it. I would say, oh, well, the sidewalk isn't big enough for the both of us. But then like you've got a black person walking my direction, I'm walking towards there and we fit perfectly fine, you know, silently against each other. So it's not a rationalisation I need to make. It's a, it's a pill that the opposite uh, person coming my way needs to swallow. So it's, it, it's a very complicated, racist discussion. And again, I apologize for ranting, but you understand where I am coming from really liked
7: uh, what you were saying about approaching the conversation with an attempt of uh, understanding. And I, as, as difficult as this is to rationalize, I've been attempting to have these conversations with people from a position of empathy so that they're more receptive to listening to what might be an opposing viewpoint. And it's difficult because my gut reaction is I want to scream in their face and ask them how they can be so Blindly ignorant, but nobody's going to be receptive to that. So, um, my own personal experience just recently specifically with folks, including my own mother has been to ask why, why do you feel the way that you feel and really dig into where, um, where they're coming from so that we can open up the other end of that conversation. So uh, again, I just really liked what you said about trying to approach the conversation with understanding. And as difficult as it is, I think one of the better methodologies towards having these talks is even though, even though we feel like that person is super duper in the wrong, trying to approach it with empathy may make it easier to have the conversation on a whole.
0: I think some of the things that come up in my mind are white fragility and how it ends conversations that can be uh, constructive and helpful. Uh, also, fear. I think fear is the big, is the big thing, is this, ins- this installation of fear, um, fear-based thinking, and whether that has to do with the day-to-day and understanding where those things come from and the intersectionality of privilege, uh, fear-based thinking, and it all comes back to this one system, and the one system is a white male patriarchy that has commanded everything. And I know that that's also making things very complicated because there's um, when I see people post things and the, the people who are seemingly in, in my bigger circles, the most confused and the most misguided about what all of this is about are the middle-aged white women. And a lot of the time I have found this because women have experienced the patriarchal smash of having that daily fear, like the daily fear of going out and going for a walk, and I've crossed the street because, or actually, gone on a different path because any dude has been on the road, right? So would it's not just black men? It's like, like all men are a threat to me as a small female human. Um, you're really the biggest threat there is to me and my health and my well-being, but that. And couple like that sort of sense of fear that women are um, faced with daily is is also confused because there's a sense of well I have fearfulness too and I've experienced these feelings as well so I think it can kind of come to a place of empathy um, with them and uh, and try to expand that right like there's. You can be equally privileged and oppressed. And so understanding how these things overlap in a very complex system is really where we're at. And I agree that it's a white problem to deal with the white fragility, to have conversations with one another.
2: I think one of the things, especially everyone zeroing in on what's going on right now, is that it starts to make communities of color, especially black people, think about, all of the things that we've had to file away and not pay attention to because and if we did it would literally stop us in our tracks because we've been so conditioned to having to make so many accommodations in order to show up every day outside of our homes Um, and so sometimes when people do say ask us like hey can we can you help us understand or can you guide us in this right direction, it's like that's one more thing on top of us now having to actually process not only our personal histories, but also you know, a lot of us are learning more things about our own history and for instance, you know I read an article where you know, people made people in our community into wallets and passed them down as heirlooms and it's like okay if you are currently in this day and age receiving an heirloom of a wallet that's made from black people and that's a treasured possession and you're making us into furniture like how can you even regard us as like you're equal either you see us as property or animals and it's very concerning because i don't think all people are like that, you know, in the majority. But it's it's very concerning that there are people who continue to do this, who even thought to do it back then. But it's like these type of things are still going on now. And the byproduct of it is that, yeah, maybe people aren't making people into wallets. Maybe people are doing other things or maybe cops now are killing, you know, innocent black. It's just like, yeah, there, there's a watered down effect, but there's still like, that effect and then that heaviness on top of your day to day living, I mean i've done a lot of reflection, you know, like you all have during this time, and it's like you know the first time I was called the n word was when I was uh either three or four years old I went to was the first African American child to go to a Christian school in my town, and i didn't even know what it meant. I had to come up, I came home and I asked my grandfather um Sunday before church, and I was like, "Yeah, this girl called me this, what does it mean?" And he was like, you need to go back to the school and tell them what she said. And it was just one of those things, like, from I'll never forget it, because it was just such a, like, marker in my life. Or when the KKK would have rallies in our town. Or when the churches were being burned. Or, you know, sometimes they would see my mom and not know that she had kids that looked like me. And just different things like that, you know, going on shoots and people can't do your hair you have to show up ready to go because they don't know how to do your hair or they don't think to know how to do your hair or people wanting to touch your hair because it looks different or you having to think, okay, can I wear my hair like this today because I have to present this way or I have to... So to be walking around constantly, like making sure you're making other people comfortable is a very exhausting thing. Have we learned how to do it? Yes. Do we have these conversations in our community? Yes do we have them outside? No, because retaliation, you know, we don't want to close doors on ourselves. And and, and a lot of us are trailblazing in certain areas and it's like, well, if I don't do it, other people in my community are not going to even be brave enough to do it. And so, and then being a woman, it adds another dimension to that. So it's like you have, you know, the race, you have colorism, you have gender, you know, politics and so it's just it can be a lot and it and I can imagine that speaking with a lot of people in my community it's a very traumatic time. So if our white counterparts are who are progressive and wanting to see change are like, oh my goodness, this is crazy, you can only imagine what types of horror and nightmares that our communities have and when people are coming to realizations about certain things that if Either come to light in their own families that have happened to people because people have been silent and now they're starting to tell their truth, or you're starting to learn about people in our community from earlier generations and the things that they've had to endure in order for this country to be what it is now.
1: I was just gonna say, I made a comment recently on um, a, a black social media friend of mine, and I said something about I love black girl hair. And she's like, Can you elaborate on black girl hair? And I feel like I have to be really sensitive too. And maybe because I'm more conscious than some of my other white friends, but I feel like if I say the wrong thing, I might set somebody off and that's just not fun. And yes, black people have to deal with way more than I have to deal with it. But anytime I say something like that, I truly mean it. Cause I, I like, it was like a nicety. It wasn't a bad thing. And, and over these years, I'm, I'm going to be 40 in December. Like how many different were? How many different names are we supposed to call somebody, right? Like black was acceptable years ago and then it was African-American and then it was whatever. So now, you know, I'm just like, you know, my black friends say black, so I'm just going to say black. And I, I feel like she took offense to it. And I was like, no, I'm really telling you like I've always loved black girl hair, like finger waves and Afros and cornrows. Like I want black girl hair and now my daughter wants black girl hair. And I think that's awesome. You know?
6: And we buy her black dolls because of it. I know it seems like a really innocent thing to just say generally black girl hair, right? But that's kind of generalizing a whole thing, you know what I mean? To say like, I love black girl hair. There's a lot of different, like, do a lot of different things, you know. And there's a lot of different textures and kinds of hair to sort of group it as black girl hair. It's just like, okay, what does that mean though? You know what I mean? Tiana yeah. has her hair yeah. out and natural and curly. Mine is braided.
1: From relaxed to an afro. And I was like, I love it, right? I love all of it. And I had to give her my background. Like, I had to tell her I went to two predominantly black schools. So, for my experience, it was always black girl hair. Because she said it could be other cultures, too. And I said, I totally get that. But for me, I always envied the black girls. <laughs> you know? So, that was my experience. But it's just, again, it's about walking on eggshells and how that's not really the way anybody should have to
6: live. I get what you're saying about feeling like, you know, you can't necessarily say what you want to say, but that's what we do with everyone. You know what I mean? Like, that's just the sensitivity. I, I kind of feel like a lot of people feel like you do, where it's just like, oh my God, what do I do? What do I say? Everything I do is wrong. So we do that though. So then we just do it you know what I mean? And I guess I come from a place too, as a black woman, you know, especially like being a Southern black girl and like having to maneuver all the sensitivity of what I couldn't do so white people wouldn't get mad. So like, you know what I mean? We have had to learn that generation after generation, all of the sensitivities and like nuances of navigating in a white world. And so it just it just kind of feels dismissive sometimes where it's just like okay just do these things so that you respect us and it's like oh my god that's so much to do like there's so many things
4: i reckon like you sincerely do like i feel like those sort of allies were trying to navigate their way into like political correctness is a massive roadmap. but like Nazir and kiana would say like we are people who are acclimated to sort of, like Incorporating ourselves into these different communities, you know, I grew up in an area where, where there were predominantly black people I didn't have people calling me like outside of like, you know camaraderie, you know, you know, it's a very common uh term to use so her like Like the women in this in this chat I do like bless all of you because like she was saying You do work in a system where you're marginalized in a very particular way You know, I I know people either from the military or my civilian job who will admittedly say like women should not be able to vote, for example. And it's like, it it blows my mind because they sincerely believe that the lack of autonomy in women in yesteryear was the pristine means of existence. You didn't have to do anything. All you did was have kids and stay at home and cook. And it, it vexes me that people reduce an entire gender of people to a role as as a birth giver or as a mother. So I do I, I do sympathize with the role of women, whether it's black, white, or Asian, what may, what may have you, as Subservient. You know, your your traditional role in the patriarchy is subservient. You either there to serve a purpose, or you're there to just you know continue on the legacy, and that is incredibly insulting. I feel like that is something that is very unique to your gender and should be absolutely acknowledged. Like we there's no reason why we can acknowledge a race issue and not uh, acknowledge a gender issue. But I, I don't want to hop on this too much. But like Nazila is saying, you know, the idea of I don't know, like black hair or the fetishization of, of the black culture, it becomes an area of, I appreciate you, but there is a fine thin line to, to, uh, to walk because there's appropriation and there's appreciation. You've, gotta do, well, you've got to do you got you got to be comfortably in one area before you can like look at the other one because you click what am I not meant to do? So honestly, as as you know, as white people, it is a very difficult, almost Stockholm syndrome area of your navigation in today's world. Because you're in an area where, okay, wow, these black people, these minorities all altogether, have had such a marginalised, obvious, systematic racism as they grow generation, generation, generation. So you, there, there is no timetable for progress. If that makes sense, like, there's no timetable for you. Saying, okay, well, I want to be someone who is. Uh, Activist, I want to be someone who 's conscious. I want to be someone who no longer is deliberately ignorant it 's not going to happen overnight you know it 's not going to happen in, in in a comfortable area. You have to explore those areas of uncomfortable uh, uh, spaces to see okay, well, now I know where I need to go from here today. Blue leaks like it happened to like there was a hacker either whether it 's anonymous or not, there is a document of almost 300, maybe 400 gigabytes of, of information about the police and how they are handling the protests. Like the, the FBI is admitting, in emails, in Gmail accounts, again, you can Twitter this, you Google, Google hashtag blue leaks. It's on there, like as of today. And you can see the documents that say, like, well, we have to treat these people a certain way? Oh, by the way, this Twitter handle is in your, is in your jurisdiction officer. You know, keep an eye on that person. Like it's, it's all obvious and it's all there. And it's like, okay, well, now that we have this information, where do we go from here? How can I help you no longer be marginalized? But it begins with a peer area. And then it begins with, okay, well, now we know. How can we make others know? You know, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to, be, it's not going to happen overnight. You know, but we have to have this conversation. We have to move forward to make progress.
2: <laughs> but I also, I mean, to piggyback off of what Wood said, it's like, you don't have to learn it all at once. I literally was having a conversation with... A friend from my immediate community and we were talking about hair and I was like you know what before I say gray you know you will prefer me to say texture and she was like texture so even within our own community we're trying to make sure that we're being respectful of others and the nuances because everybody's had different experiences some girls are okay with black girl hair some people do not want to it to be referred to that way it's just a matter of you know what, I want to make sure I get this correct. Should I say X, Y, Z? Oh, no, this is what you said. Oh, I don't mind. I mean, it's the same as when guys talk to me on the field. It's like, can I call you a chick? I don't have a problem with it. I know some other female players might. It's just getting to know that person and taking that information away and saying, okay, I think I can use this going forward. Is this going to work for you? And it's just a give and take like that. I mean, even in our community, we're continuously learning about one another. And so I think outside the community, we just want those interactions to be the same because as what is said, and Nazila, Nazila, I don't wanna mispronounce your name. Is that how you say it, Nazila? Is that we've had to figure out how to navigate out of safety and courtesy and respect for the majority culture. So that's all I think minority culture's awarding in return is just that extra level of care.
6: And it's gonna be difficult. Like it's gonna be hard. It's- It's not going to be comfortable. It's going to be actually really uncomfortable a lot of the time. Um, Partly because, you know, like you were saying, Mia, there's a lot of things, different things to navigate, but also because it's just a built-up frustration over decades, passed down through families, trying to like deal and convince and sort of have this conversation that we're having now. And now that we're finally having it, a lot of people that you encounter are gonna be impatient because we've just put up with a lot of stuff up to this point, like uh, Selena was saying earlier I, I believe that's fully part of the fragility part of it too, is that you know there is a lot of emotion that we're coming at it from because we've been frustrated and like been going through it for a really long time through like decades of families, and so when we finally get to the table, it's really, really hard to speak to everyone in very soothing tones and make everyone feel comfortable. That's really hard when you're angry. That's really hard when you've been frustrated. Like that's just really hard. And it's even more frustrating when when you do like even let a little bit of that frustration go and not you, but like I've been in conversations with people where you're really trying to make the point. And it's like, oh, well, you're getting all emotional. I mean, I, I feel uncomfortable. I can't have this with you anymore. And it's like, really? how do i not be emotional that's so hard (laughs) that's just really hard
1: i think treating everyone as an individual and asking each person like so how i could have approached that differently with that black girl was to ask her how should i say this you know and even if that was publicly on social media the how should i say this what i was saying earlier about being curious is how you get your foot in the door with whatever other race and how you understand them better. And so if we treat everybody individualistically, then we can do that. And it doesn't become about a group or a race. It becomes about you and me, that person and me, and how we have a dynamic versus me thinking you represent this whole race. And I was listening to a podcast, Renee Brown, and she was talking about the art of apology and how there's this, with a psychologist she had on there, and there was this this art of being curious in order to listen better, to truly be able to apologize, to truly be able to let that person feel heard, because otherwise the apology might feel like an attack. And so it's this listening and this curiosity that seems to be this overall theme that I keep hearing on different levels for different themes whether it be business or personal or this so and this i do take personally so i feel like curiosity listening individualism
5: with regard to privilege you know salim was saying uh having a mixture of privilege and oppression and there was this test that someone messaged me on facebook and it said you can do a quiz to find out how privileged you are so what the hell? Let's give it a try. It's a, it's a test. I mean, it might as well be, what kind of potato are you? You know, it's a Facebook test. But so I did it. And turns out that I'm 27% privileged. So I am by their standards, not privileged at all. And there, there were, you know, there were certainly like detailed questions. It wasn't just something that some schmuck threw up. They, they put some thought into it. So how is it that I am by their standards, not privileged, yet I feel very, very privileged? it's because of self-awareness. So I'm aware that I am, first of all, an American, regardless of the current climate and how we're being taken advantage of in this country, we're still ahead of the curve. And so there's that, I'm also a man, jumps me right up there. I'm heterosexual. Like, so the the things that made me not privileged had to do with, have I, uh, have I ever been called certain names and, you know, just different, different little things. What it did not take into account was the, the path you have to walk going from not-privileged step to next not-privileged step as an American white man. So, like, all the things that Nazila and Cameron and Wood are talking about are exactly that. The walk you have to take from, step, from point A to point B on any given day recognizing that you have to have kind of a shield on you. That's something I don't have to experience. So that's why I think I am privileged. But I think part of being where we are right now as white people is going out of our way. Like if we're we're people of conscience, yes, I want to be natural and genuine and, and authentic. But I am being much more conscious on a daily basis of making sure that I am inclusive and Promoting the black figures in my life. I mean, I, I always have done that to a degree, but like now, I'm making more of a point of it because I feel like it's our obligation.
1: So that's why I wanted to do this branding workshop. This branding for diversity starts with the children. I've been working a lot with our school system recently, and I'm um, I'm on the board for the PTC, which is the Parent Teacher Club. And I know that sounds petty, but it really is politically helping aid the school's decisions, which is really cool cause I'm getting to see how the inner workings are. But the yearbook comes out and it's like all white people, even though we have a large Mexican population. And then the PTC website was like all white people and it's all the moms who are white pumping up the other moms. And then, you know, I'm like asking for donations on one of the pages and all I can find is white people. And why aren't we showing more diversity amongst our school when diversity is what you see when you go to school, but yet you don't see it on the marketing materials? That makes no sense. Marketing people have a responsibility. Designers, artists, we have a responsibility to put these images in the forefront and make it more relatable for whatever the industry is. It's our job and our responsibility to go up to those people that are our clients and say, who are you representing? Who do you want to sell to? Let's be real about that.
3: Putting black people, say, on your website or whatever, just because is that is that I don't know how that is either because I've noticed in the past two weeks on, say, Instagram, which I tried to stay off of after, you know, the blackout day. It just I needed to just stop and think. Um, And then I started seeing everyone promoting the the black girls at their schools. And that felt fake to me, too. It felt like joining in just because. And I thought for a second, should I change my website? But I, I didn't, because I uh, I have on my website who I have, who are my students. And they're all different colors, so they're all different ages, they're different abilities, they're different sizes. So I already kind of do that. But it seemed like everyone else was getting on the bandwagon to push how diverse they were. and I. I'm not sure how I feel about that also because I'm, you know, I'm Asian. My my school is, it's very colorful. So it doesn't seem to be a subject that I've never noticed anything
1: among the kids because they're all kids, you know, they're basically kids too. And mostly I have young kids. So do you think they market it appropriately? Like, do you think they're showing that true diversity that you see when you walk in the doors? I don't know. I felt like the past two weeks it's been
3: pushed To say they were diverse when some schools and some ballet companies are not.
4: I get what you're saying. It it feels like disingenuous. You know, you've got a movement. You've got it's it's a it's an election year. You've got a virus. It's very trending to broadcast your progressiveness. But in the same time, like I said earlier, there is no timetable for progress. You know, if people are jumping on the idea of, okay, well, have I been inclusive? Have I been someone who represents what I truly believe? It's a very difficult conversation, not only to have with other people, but also to have with yourself, because you have to have that introspective thought. Have I been someone who is an ally? Have I, have I had the awkward conversation with people? So it is a very difficult road to navigate, but I do admire your uh, nobility, Tory, because you're like, all right, well, I don't feel like I have misrepresented who I've been. So there is no extra gesture I need to do to exemplify the people who are in my class or who, who are in my community. So that is big, but same thing with Mia, it's like, okay, well, have I been responsible? Have I been someone who's actively made a presence of every marginalized community? And it's difficult because you, you, you have people who say, oh, you know, you've got your blokes who, who, who've come back. From, from Italy and come back to London, or can they work because they're, they're not from the area? You know, you've got Boris Johnson saying, oh, you know, the coronavirus isn't as bad as it used to be. You know, Italians come back. And this is a man who progressively pushed for Brexit. So you've got a very... Contra, uh, contradictory standpoint and someone who's begging people to say, okay, well, I need Britain first. I need these people to understand that we look after our own. But when it comes to menial labor, when it comes to wage slave jobs, when it comes to things that people do not want to do, who English people, who even Americans who don't want to do, it comes down to immigrants. It comes down to your Italians, your Mexicans, the people who want to do jobs because it creates a foundation of betterment in their idea of what it means to be either an American or an Englishman. So, It's a very, very difficult navigation that we all have to do. And each road is different. But so long as we try and feel like we are sincere to ourselves, then we can say with with absolute certainty that I have been someone who is an ally. I have been someone who is progressive. I have been someone who knows what they're talking about because I've done my research. You know, you've got loads of people nowadays who will look at a a clickbait article title and never read the article at all. All they need is just a, a... a reaction and they get it every bloody time. I and mean, you like, whoa mate, slow down, read the article, look at the data, understand where this person's coming from. But it's difficult because you've got people like, you know, present company who are very keen on information, who are very keen on a conversation, but you've got people who you're trying to get rational information from a rationality and you're not going to get, no matter how hard you try and get that stone, it's never going to bleed. You're never going to get blood from that stone, but we try and try again. And while it may be our downfall, it is a testament to our tenacity. And I respect everyone in this chat for having that. Because it's a rare trait. We don't appreciate that enough. It is an absolute uncommon standpoint to say, you know what, I will open my ears, I will admit to my wrongdoing, and I will admit I'm wrong, educate my ass. Because I need to know. I need to understand where you're coming from. Because otherwise, we are not going to make a step forward. We are making more steps back. Every bloody time. Sorry. (laughs) I do have
5: a question related to Tory. And, well, everybody. So I'm not sure how um where everybody is uh, of our past. I mean, I, I could certainly learn more, but we at one point did put Japanese people into concentration camps, internment camps, we called them. So, you know, it's not only black people who have been oppressed in this country and it's not just Japanese and it's not just gay, LGBTs. We, it's our history. And the foundation of the United States of America is violence and, and oppression. That's just, that, that's how colonialism works. So I wonder with you, Tori, because you have, you have some uh, unpleasant parts of your past that you probably don't like to think about too much and your stories from your parents, perhaps your grandparents, what is it like as an Asian person in this country? Do you feel left out of this, this current racial revolution conversation? Or is it more like more people have been oppressed and you know, the important thing is just that we're all heard. What it, what are you going through?
3: Uh, well, yeah, I mean, my mother said she grew, when she grew up in Hawaii, she remembers the planes going overhead and they had to go into the bomb shelters and put their heads down so there would be only black showing, so they wouldn't be seen or shot. My um, grandmother died outside an internment camp in Singapore, waiting for my grandfather to come out. My father was shipped off to India Um, because of the war in his country, because the Japanese were in his country. My father's Chinese, my mother's Japanese. So even for them to be married was not great, um, because the Japanese were the enemy to my father's side. So they didn't even, they didn't really acknowledge my mom for most of the marriage. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I have my own history, but listening to uh, Kiana and, you know, and Nazila, it's not probably something I, I don't feel like I live with it every day. I, definitely this conversation that's been going on the past couple weeks has made me remember being called names in high school, you know, and growing up, lots of names, lots of teasing, Um, and then, and then how men think of Asian women as you grow older. My husband's white, so when we would go into, you know, an Asian restaurant, I would get this happened to us so many times i would get maybe an, a menu in um i would get it in english they would get a menu in, in chinese so they just didn't like any of us i would get a fork everyone would get you know they they wouldn't acknowledge that i was i could use the chopsticks i would get the, the cups and the plates that were either dirty or cracked and it would be every You know, until I would start to notice and then we'd either, you know, make a stink or something. But those things happen to me. I've been followed around in stores, all that stuff. And then I feel like I have, I have, I had put a lot of that away, though, um, since moving back to California. Because where I live is also because I think in California, you get to live in your house. You're not on the, in New York, you're on the streets every day and you encounter that. You encounter so many people and so many um, interactions all the time. So I've I've lived my little insular life here a little bit and it's it's brought up a lot now. So I I don't feel like no, I haven't lived the experience that our, you know, our, my black families have lived. They've talked to me about that. You know, some of them have written to me and told them told me what they are doing and um, how they feel and they're you know they're happy that our school has never made a you know, why would why would any school make an issue? <laughs> that doesn't even seem like something you should be thanked for, but they've shared with me their experiences. And I think I don't, I can sort of relate, but not fully. You know, I grew up in a, in a privileged area. My parents were in the medical field. So I grew up in a white area, kind of, I wasn't white because I, I, I didn't, I did get called names, but I knew I had that privilege of being able to do what I wanted to do when I, you know, I wanted to dance. I did think about there weren't that many Asians. There are now, but I thought, you know, am I going to look different in a line of swans? Kind of, but my skin color is going to be okay there. Right. So I think about now for my, my little girls of color, who do they, you know, they look up to Misty Copeland, who's everything to them, um, that maybe they can do it. And I, I want all my kids to have that dream. So, and it's, it feels hard to know that maybe they don't, or right now they don't, what they have is to, you know, like one one family told me, she's had the talk with her son a couple of times already. Um, I I wouldn't have to do that with my child. And so that's something that is, as you say, generations, built into you, it's just, it's an anger that's gotta be, not that you're angry all the time, but it's in there. That you have to live your life a little differently than other people do. And I, I'm sort of mid-ground there, but I don't feel I can, I can't speak to your experience at all. And I'm really honored to be here and have, hear you say these things that uh, we all need to be hearing and we all need to be talking about this. So you know, I thank you for your sharing that how how it feels. It doesn't it doesn't feel like oh I might have to talk to this person or that person. You're just always in your experience. I mean, we all are, but I think it's different if you can put on your hat, get my I can get in my car and drive and just do my thing and come back and and um, not have to think if I'm Asian or not or you know whatever. You know, Although, uh, obviously.
5: What's that last part?
3: i said obviously i am i am asian are so. you asian
5: <laughs> oh i didn't, no, I I didn't can. know that. there's a friend of mine an acting friend named ajinkia desai and he's from india he wrote this thing on facebook recently which is really applicable to, to what we're talking about the reason why we south asians have been accommodating racism is that we've made it a bigger priority misplaced of keeping white people comfortable Those liberal white people who get to vote on immigration policies, diversity and inclusion policies, who get to decide whether they should fund immigrant South Asian artists for their status quo challenging points, who also have a say in whether we keep our jobs or not, whether we get to stay in their neighborhoods or not. Most of the time, we fear losing support from the white allies who are not overtly racist, but still willfully ignorant enough to to covet their privilege. What if they shifted their loyalties because we challenged their beliefs? like the time I was at a white Thanksgiving and this young white woman emphasized how she had to give up her $40 hairspray at airport security. And I had the urge to tell her that remarkably contrarily, my Muslim roommates primary concern at the airport was not being framed as a terrorist. And I still didn't act on the urge to tell her. And when we conveniently decide not to speak up for fellow South Asians, we also decided not to speak up for black people either, given that black people have it worse. No, instead, We engaged in the conversation that did not aspire to to equity, subtly trying to align ourselves with the liberal white people we were conversing with. I just think that's such a a, a clear, concise, astute point that he's making there. And and it relates to something Nazila said in her interview with us uh, that she read from someone's book. And that is white people don't think of themselves as a race. Basically, there's white, and everything else is a variation or a derivation from that, and that's inherently part of our privilege.
4: I was going to chat to Tori and tell her I appreciate her acknowledging her, um, I don't know, like her her privilege growing up in a very, uh, not homogenous community, but in in a very opening community, but like at the same time, she does have you know, instances where she deals with racism. And I feel like that, acknowledging that is a part of, a part of understanding where everyone comes from, you know, like she says she doesn't understand. Like and I see that on Twitter and Instagram. I don't understand, but I stand, you know, standing now is like, you know, I stand for like something I'm not necessarily a demographic of, but I I am behind you 100%. And I appreciate those people who are like, who, who, who are making moves to try and make more progress. But a part of that is acknowledging, you know what, you know, that, that subtle bit of racism, you know, that, that you know, being called a name, being, you know, lambasted for whatever, you know, minutiae of thing that makes you different from anyone else. Like, we have to say, okay, well, that's not okay. You know, it, it may be awkward. It may make you feel like you're on, you know, oh, I've, I've got mad or I've got uh, offended because you've said something. Well, yeah, because what you said is offensive. People, like me was saying before, you know, reacting emotionally. You know, I, I'm. You know, I find it hard to untangle emotion from from a from an act. You know, passively, I understand the more democratic, liberal mindset because I feel like I align myself with that. Not not wholeheartedly, obviously, but I feel like it's easier to understand where you know the more progressive mindset is. It's more difficult to listen to a conservative or a Republican rant about the police officers and how difficult their job is, and you know how much in danger they are. You know, it's it's difficult, but you have to. Pass those thoughts and filter it, and understand. Okay, well, these people are coming from this area of speak. So, with that being said, I I get the sentiment of of the the officers, you know, having a difficult job. But we cannot allow ourselves to say, okay, well, the job is difficult. So let's let people who are not ready for the job be be a part of it. Let's let's train them a bit more. We're talking about defunding the police. You know, we're talking about changing over responsibilities. Disseminating responsibilities of handing people with uh, mental issues, with domestic issues, with things like that that doesn't require a taser or a a, a firearm or a a pepper spray. So when people hear, oh, my God, you're going to defund the police. It's like, no, we have to reallocate those funds to other things. But people don't get that. You know, it's it's a matter of educating people who like their perspective is it's a conversation of receptiveness or reception.
1: I agree. And this is coming back to that whole curiosity. If you truly want to understand how the police work, then you should be curious enough to listen to how it goes down. And a lot of police forces are not correct in how they're training people. And I talked to my dad about this at great depth and he was in the DIA. He was an intelligence officer. So I have some insight to how things work a little bit. And I think... The problem is, I agree with Wood, it's, it's how they're spending their funding, and it's from the get-go how they're training them, and are these police officers mentally prepared to handle a crisis situation? And you see a lot of things in the news, or not in the news, like on TikTok, where it looks like the police are scared and they don't know what to do with that power or that gun or that taser or whatever. And they use it wrongfully because they weren't trained properly to do so. And that's where the issue is, is who's allowing these people to get trained inappropriately to have that power?
7: Or not get trained at all. I mean, we're expecting so much more from the police than what they were ever intended to do. Right, right. And putting them in these extremely difficult, terrifying situations with inadequate or utterly absent training entirely.
1: Yeah, and there's been police um, companies like in Pacific Grove because it's like an almost all white community where they thought no crime happens. And it truly is like one of America's last hometowns, is what they call it. Well, I lived in PG and I had my house broken into where a white guy on meth came in and fed my two children. And I was there. And I had the most scary night of my life because of it. And so. Just because it's an all-white town doesn't mean those police shouldn't be trained properly and doesn't mean you should close down the police department because there's still issues with meth there because these whiteys are a lot of trust fund kids who have money to spend on drugs. The training is where the problem is and the lack of, of resources to for mental preparation, not guns and tasers, but mental preparation for these people. That's the problem. So I think somebody's going to have to get it, right? And hopefully, and like, how do you do that? How do you put your hope in hands of somebody who's been messing up? And I'm saying somebody being the entire kind of community, right? So I don't know if we should defund it. I mean, what do you guys think? Do you think defunding is the answer?
6: I think it comes from both directions. I agree with both you and Remy. There is enough training. And I read an article, I think it was yesterday, where like, basically, they spend about 18 weeks in the academy and like 12 hours of Actual training, and then they were like, and go. And I'm like, okay, that's not enough. Um, but that combined with, you know, a police union, as we've discovered, which is a powerful, powerful source. And so, no matter what the actual police training is at the department, we have unions who are like, you know, it's a jungle out there. It's a war we're fighting. Now we're in a battle. So they put them in a certain mindset, and then add to that, them historically being able, being protected with their heinous acts by a justice system who does not give them any consequences. So you have a badly trained officer with a police union basically telling him besides that training that this is a war and those are your enemies. So then they commit heinous crimes against these enemies and we have a judicial system that's just like, yeah, we're not gonna punish them though, cause you know, they're, they're this, this, this uh, protected class and they get to do what they want with the gun, with the deadly weapon. And, you know, whenever there's been a police killing, I've always, <laughs> it's really frustrating. But like from the other side and from the like Blue Lives Matter people, you get, well, you know, they had a bad day. Everyone has a bad day. And I'm like, right. But if the, the dude at McDonald's has a bad day, I might not get cheese on my, my quarter pounder. You know what I'm saying? That's not killing me though. If a policeman has a bad day, I could die or be seriously injured. And, and it's a mental training and it's a whole cultural bias that the police have. And I'm really tired of people saying, you know, oh, well, what about the black policemen? They, they have the same racist training. It's not like everybody isn't trained that black people are like criminals and enemies. Anybody who's a cop, no matter what their race is, is actually trained that when you go out there, the criminals are black. So then they all have the same bias training. There was a whole video on on officers of color. These
5: were NYPD officers. They were told you need to look for mainly black people, then go for Hispanics, stick to these neighborhoods because that's where they are. And not only that, but like if if an officer gets shot, we name an entire frickin' road after them. But if they kill a 1,000 black innocent people, Anybody name them? They tell you this
7: to your face. Black and Hispanics between 14 to 21. They must get stopped. At the end of the month, these officers, whoever don't have that arrest, or those few summonses, they're pressured to find something. You might not see nothing. You're supposed to be visible. You might not see anything, but you go hunting, like bounty hunting for an arrest. Locking up some, some old guy, some homeless guy, finding somebody who's riding a bicycle on the sidewalk, who's spitting, and you bring him in. The problem is when you go hunting, when you put any type of numbers on a police officer to perform, we are going to go to the most vulnerable. The most vulnerable. Of course. We're going to go to the LGBT community. We're going to go to the black community. We're going to go to those people that have no vote, that have no power. If we start doing what we're doing in midtown Manhattan, a phone call to the mayor's office is going to be made. That's gonna be the end of it.
4: We're the predators; they're the prey. The worst thing you can have is a police officer that
7: needs an arrest for the month. So
0: you're all minorities. How does that make you feel?
7: It's it's horrible. This is something coming from the top that trickles its way down. That trickles, that
5: trickles its way, way down. Its way down.